You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Today's passages are taken from 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6, starting with chapter 5, uh, verse 1 to 6. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Verse 11. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Chapter 6, verse 8 to 9. And take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Verses 12 to 13. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the, the, lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks very much for reading a word to us and for us. And thank you, Simon. You uh, sort of lifted a bit of gloom from my heart because when the guy passed out, I thought he passed out during the sermon. <laughs> so few, he passed out during the singing. Okay. <laughs> so it's, it's not really my fault. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so I'm uh, Lian An from the First Congregation. It is good afternoon to you. It's 12.04. Battles. You've been in battles. We have all been in battles. We have lost. We have felt help, uh, hopeless and helpless. What do we battle against? When was the last time you battled? You're probably battling now. We battle with circumstances. We battle with exams, job situations, whatever other circumstances God brings in you into. We battle with physical circumstances, illness, something about your body. We battle with people. We battle with ourselves, relationships, brothers, sisters, parents. 
We battle most heavily with sin and temptation. And so often we lose the battle, right? And then we feel hopeless. I spoke to someone just now and he said he felt hopeless about life. I mean, that's such a huge thing. And this guy is 28 years old and he felt hopeless because he had been battling a lot of seemingly small things and he felt he had lost and he felt hopeless. So we battle, we lose hope. And that is the picture of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 4 to 7, but especially in chapter 5. What's happened? Chapter 4, they went out with their weapon of mass destruction and they didn't win. They lost. They lost the ark. It was captured, captured by the Philistines, and now it is lodged in Philistia. So they have lost the battle. They feel lost. And they probably feel a little bit hopeless. So that's the, that's the arc of the passage that we are doing. We are now going into that time when Israel and Samuel fades into the background. We know that even now, as, as Samuel fades into the background, God is forming him. And when he appears again, he's going to lead Israel. What's Israel doing? What's going on? All these things are less important than what God is doing in chapters 5 and 6. And what we're going to see is that God reigns in Philistia. He reigns in the Philistine territories. We are also going to see, in response to God's revelation of him, himself, how man responds to God. And I hope, right, and my prayer is all of us, when we see these things and we consider our battles and our circumstances, we will do that last thing. We will begin and continue to trust in Jesus. So what have you been battling with? What have you lost and lost hope in? Whatever it is, uh, my prayer for you is that you will receive promise and hope that comes out of these passages. Let me pray before we continue. Our Father in heaven, we are sinners and broken people, suffering in a broken world, a fallen world. We ache, we weep, we, we bleed. Lord, we turn to many things. We turn to ourselves, we turn to the world, we turn to idols. But Lord, today, this afternoon, remind us, help us, and just drag us that we may turn to you. Speak to us, Lord, with your word, and reveal to us, Lord, not the smallness that we think you are, but your immensity, Lord. Reveal to us your immensity. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, let's look at God in Philistia, chapters, chapter 5. Verses 1 to 12. The context is actually very neatly summarized in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. That, in one sentence, tells you there was a battle, Israel lost, Ark captured. Here we are. Where are we? We are in Ashdod. And um, what's happened? The Ark now seems to be like... Uh, like a spoil of war, something that the enemies have captured and they've brought it into their, well, let's call it a throne room. It's actually the temple. Uh, what is the ark? Let's, uh, I think we have a picture of the ark. That is a depiction of what the ark is. It's, it's a box probably about this big, this wide, this high. It's a, it's a box of wood lined with metal, uh, gold, sorry, gold. And at the top, you see two angels sort of kneeling against each other. These are the cherubim. And once a year, God promised, and he would, uh, that he would appear 
between and above the two cherubims once a year. And that's the, 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 year, the day of the year that the Israelites celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is the Ark. We're going to talk more about the Ark later, but this is what it is. What does it represent? It represents God's presence to the Israelites. God coming into the midst and dwelling with God's people. So this Ark was dragged into the temple. So this is like a trophy. As you read 1 Samuel chapter 5, the ark is described as a thing. It is the ark of God. It is a box. It is like a piece of furniture. And Dagon is described as a person, right? Verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now, Dagon wasn't there. What was there? It was a statue of Dagon. I don't know how big the statue was, but here's the irony, right? The irony is this. This is their trophy, which they treat as an object, and they call the other object, which is actually a statue, they call that an entity, a being, a person, a god. And we will flip the irony, irony uh, a little bit afterwards. So, the inevitable happens, right? You and I, who believe in the power of our immense god, when you bring God over and against an idol, what is going to happen? Day, night one, they bring the uh, ark into the temple. Day two, day two, what happens? The next day, early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground. And the author is clear, is intentional to tell you before the ark of the Lord. You know, just by the writing of this, it's no accident. But the Philistines sort of give excuses, maybe gusts of wind, rain, small earthquake, never mind, let's prop it back up. Just by their doing that, it tells you, right, that that's what idols are about. They can't stand on their own. When they fall on, we've got to help them up. They are actually just inanimate objects with no real power. All right, so that happens next night, second night. What happens the next day? More. When they wake up the next morning, what do they see? Dagon had fallen face down on the ground. And now, now, verse 3, the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold, again, before God. So this is like the definitive God answering, telling you definitively who rules in this place. And the one that rules in this place is not this smallish box, but it is the huge, the immense, the immeasurable God that reigns. And He crushes this, this statue. Let me rephrase what happens this morning. To rephrase it, on the morning of the third day, on the morning of the third day, the idol, the enemy was defeated and his powerlessness displayed. You see little traces of Jesus there? On the morning of the third day, the defeat is made clear. So here's the irony. I talked about how ironic it is that they treat the box as a trophy, as an object, the Ark of God, and they treat their statue as a person, which is Dagon. What's the reality? The reality is actually flip, right? That this statue is really just an object. And this object that they treat as an object is actually the representation of God. Not just the representation of God, the presence of God. The presence of God is actually there. So when we look at these things, when we look at this passage and what's happened in this room, what are some discoveries we already know 
but we can rediscover about God. God is not a box. God is a living God. He's active, He's present, and He's powerful. And He works. He works against His enemies. He works against idols. He works against Israel's enemies, the living God. Not only that, He is an all-powerful God. He will crush all pretenders who stand before Him. And He's not just one of many. He is the only. He is the only God. In the Old Testament, all comers, all God's placed before Him are crushed. In the New Testament, all principalities, all powers, all rulers will fall before Him. At the end of this wonderful gift of the Bible we have, the King of Kings will be declared. This is the only God. But I think more personally and more powerfully, when we look at this God, He is the giving God. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by a giving God? All these things about His presence, His power, they are sort of removed from us, right? We don't really relationally connect with that. But when God says He's a giving God, what do I mean? In this box, above that, once a year, for Israel, He shows His presence. But we already know that beyond that, He is eternally and always present. He's his immense presence is always there. So, he is a giving God because he gives this symbol of his presence. Let's think about scale. Let's think about scale. This box that's about this big, this big. What does it say? What does the presence of the box say about God? It says this, right? The immense, infinite God who cannot be withheld or restrained by time or space for a while, condescends to bring himself down there. He doesn't need to do that, but he does that so that we can see him, so that we can experience him, so that we have relationship with him. And this is just Old Testament, the ark and God's people. It gets better. So this is a symbol. This is a giving God. This is a symbol of his condescending love. Condescending in human terms, right? That guy is very condescending. It's kind of a negative thing to say about him, right? Sort of like he looks down on us. When we talk about this regarding God, it is not a negative thing. It is a positive thing. He looks down at us and he comes down to us. He's that kind of a loving, condescending God. He doesn't look down on us and despise us. So that is our giving God. You break open the... Uh, you break open the ark and you shouldn't because you know what will happen afterwards. You break open the ark and what do you see? Can you flip back to the uh, picture of the ark? In the ark, there are three things inside there. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. You've got two tablets. You've got a jar of manna. And then you've got uh, Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod, the priest of God. And this, again, tells us that we have a giving God. What is it that he gives? He gives provision, as symbolized by manna. He gives his law as symbolized by the tablets and he gives us priests as symbolized by the rod, right? But even more importantly, the tablets, what do they really represent? How can we describe this? This is the covenant. What is the covenant? The covenant is this agreement. Uh, I think it's in Exodus 6. God says, this people, Israel, they shall be my people, I shall be their God. You've heard this before, right? But every time we hear this, we tend to look at the first half of that. 
that phrase and we identify with that. They shall be my people. So I call myself a Christian. I call myself a person who belongs to God. That's fine. But that's kind of small, right? It's small until we look at the second half of that statement. They shall be my people and I shall be their God. God is actually saying, I am giving myself to you. This is an exclusive relationship. When I give myself, when God gives himself to us, does he give 5%, 10%? Does he give only one facet of himself? No, he gives himself fully. I think the most beautiful picture of God giving himself to us completely is what happens on the cross, right? So when, when you think about the immensity of that second half of that statement, when I feel alone, when I feel left behind, when I feel hopeless, because I am a Christian, because I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, there is an immense God behind just these words and these promises. That is how huge, that is how eternal, that is how immense God is. That is the giving God. But then we mess up, right? You keep looking at the tablet, what is the problem? The tablets are broken, right? Why were they broken? Because Israel sinned. And we sin. So when we sin, what happens? What does the giving God do? The cherubs are kneeling on this little square thing called the mercy seat. Once a year for Israel, God tells the Israelite priests to slaughter an unblemished lamb, sprinkle the blood there, and what does God give? God gives forgiveness. So this is this unconditional giving. You mess up, that's okay. There is forgiveness in the blood. So this is our God. He's a living God, all-powerful God, only God, and He is a giving God. But you take one look now at the temple and you realize it's, it can be depressing because when you think about it, what has happened? When you look at it, at, at Dagon's temple, God seems to have been defeated. Uh, and does that, does that appear to you in today's society? It, it does, right? Maybe it's not so clear in Singapore, but consider a country, some Western country, where Christianity and that kind of culture was the predominant culture. What's going on now? Now there's another wave of culture pushing that away. God seems to have been defeated. That's on national country scales, right? But on individual scales, what does this picture look like? It looks like me and you, right? What, what do I mean? What I mean is, this is a picture of God domesticated, our attempt to domesticate God. We make God into a small box, or we think he's that small, we place him next to similar dimensional uh, you know, idols, things that we put on the same level with him. That is what is happening. And we see these symbols in our houses, physical symbols, things in our hearts, we see that happening. You are going to see that in Christmas. All the symbols that point to the glorious Jesus Christ, the immense God, are going to be used by people who do not believe in him. He has been domesticated. People have attempted to domesticate him. But the other thing, the, the reassuring thing that we look at the temple, that, that's happening in the temple is the victory, the defeat, the crushing of temples, the crushing of pagan idols, falling down, face before God, broken, heads taken off, and then their hands broken. That is what we are looking forward to. So let me ask you, in that view, are you 
mildly depressed by what's going on in the world or in your country, where you see this wave of uh, liberalism or a wave of you know, rebellion against God seeming to win, a wave of rebellion that goes against God's precepts and God's laws seeming to win, don't be too pessimistic. Be optimistic because behind these verses, remember, it is not a small box. It is an immense God. Other things to think about, right, as you look at this temple would be you, me, how have we domesticated God? Have we, again, put him into a small box like the size of an ark and placed him together with the other things that we worship? This passage shows us the futility and the neediness of, of idols. They have to be propped up. Again, I was speaking to someone just now, and he said he used to, he still does, loves motorcycles. Twice, once every two weeks, he'll spend three hours polishing his motorcycle. I ride motorcycles, but I don't polish it three hours every two weeks. But one, what happened last year was he was riding his bike. So first, three hours uh, every two weeks, almost idolatrous, right? Yeah. So two years ago, he went riding on his Harley-Davidson, and he got into an accident. That literally broke him, almost killed him. It's kind of unkind to say, but the picture you get is this is what our idols do to us. They crush us. They leave us broken. We need to be mended. So he was mended by time and medicine and doctors. But when we are broken by our idols, when we turn to God, God restores us. God heals us. Yeah? So... Think about that room, think about you, and think about your own domestication of God. And then turn to God. So that's what happened in the temple. We leave the temple because now Dagon has been defeated. So the folks in the temple just go out and what we see next is God judges idolaters. Chapter, chapter 5, verse 6. Verse 6 is poignant and I read verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Why is this so poignant? Because we had just read how the hand of Dagon had been broken off, right? The hand representing power, ability, strength. And now, God has revealed that His hand is the immense hand. His hand is the powerful and the heavy hand. And His hand will afflict people who are idolaters. His hand will afflict those people to whom he has been revealed and do not turn to him. This is the very harsh God, but this is the God that we know, right? And what do they realize? They realize as most sinners realize, right? So two things have happened. They have had God revealing himself to them. How? Well, they put him in a temple, he crushes their idol, revelation, right? When that is revealed, Something will happen. Judgment will come. When God reveals himself, judgment will come. What is the, what is the response of, um, of the Philistines? How does man respond to God's revelation of himself? That's where we uh, go to the next point, right? How man responds to God. So the Philistines recognize the true God. They see him acting. Now you can see, right, a, a little bit of fear and respect, this begrudging respect of an immense God, which is the Lord our God, what do they do? What is their response? What is the normal response of a sinner when God reveals himself, even 
God-fearing people. It's distance, right? I want distance between this fearsome God. I want distance. Isaiah, Isaiah 6. This was a prophet of God. His first encounter with God. You can sense, I don't want to be near this God. My lips are unclean. Jonah, faithful prophet of God. When he realized his sin, he ran away. Distance. There's always this distance. And that's what the Philistines are doing. But they are a little bit more confident. They don't run away. They push God away. Right? So they push God away. Where does God go? Where does the ark go? From Ashdod, it's pushed to Gath. People in Gath, maybe still a little bit foolhardy. They receive God. Boom! They get the same thing, right? Affliction and tumors. By this time, news has spread. So next town, they pushed him to Ekron. And when they get to Ekron, Ekron says, no thanks, you send him somewhere else. And this is, this is what happens, right? People push away, push God away. And when they realize this, they tell themselves, okay, let's not keep it within the five cities of the Philistines. Let's just push it back to Israel. And when they do that, you know that they're just not going to send it back. Uh, they're going to send it back with with some reparation. They know that, ooh, I think we, uh, we infringe on something. God uh, has judged us already. Maybe if you don't please him, he's going to judge us even more. So what do they do? They repay or they pay or they give an offering, an offering in kind. What do I mean? When people are afflicted in a certain way by God, these people afflicted by what? Tumors, affliction, mice. So they somehow sacramentalize this thing. They've got tumors. I've never seen a golden tumor before, but that's what they did. They gold-plated their tumors. They gold-plated their mice, and then they send them back. Just remember this. They return, they send God back, and they make reparations in kind, number one. Number two, because they coated with gold, they realize that when they send God reparations, it has to be costly. Reparations in kind, costly reparations, two things, okay? And so this happens, and then just to make sure they aren't making a mistake, what mistake might they be making? Uh, chapter 6, verse 9. They just want to make sure that it did not happen to us by coincidence, which means, really, the statue of Dagon falling and all that, yeah, maybe it really was an earthquake or a mouse. So just to make sure it's not a coincidence, they give, they invent the two-cow test. You know it's the two-cow test, right? Two-cow test is in, uh, is in chapter 6, verse 7 to verse 9. Let me explain it to you. Two cows, never yoked before, just milk-bearing, calf-bearing cows. Separate them from their calves. Put the calves there in that little barn or village. And then yoke these two cows with, um, with an ox cart, a cow cart. Put the golden tumors there and then let it go. So if it is coincidence, the cows will naturally, their nature, they'll go back to their cows, right? But if this is God, it's going to go another way. And very specifically, where is it going to go back to? It's going to go back to Israel. So lo and behold, where do the cows go? The cows go back to Israel. This is not a coincidence. And a slightly distant way of describing this would be, this is what God does when his people are in need. He always turns back to them. He runs towards them, right? So that's, that's what happened. This is the cows sent away. So we're talking about how man responds to God. 
So that's the Philistines. They fade into the background as the cows come into Israel. So now we think, great, this is good. All good news from now. So let's look at how the people of Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh, Shemesh, Beth Shemesh, how they receive God. What is Beth Shemesh? I think it's a Levitical town. People there are well-versed. They know all the laws, all the rules. More importantly, they are hungering for God. So, verse 13, they were reaping their harvest in the valley and they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark. They rejoiced to see it. Rejoiced to see it. This is good. This is a good start. So they received the ark with joy. However, very soon after that, things start unraveling and things start going downhill, right? Why do I say things start going downhill? Cows as burnt offering. I don't think there are any milk cows offered as burnt offering in the Levitical procedures. They place the golden figures on a great stone. This sounds like the golden calf all over again. So it gets worse, right? It gets worse. What happens? They peer into chapter 6, verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Is this a surprise to them? No. It's not a surprise to them because, number one, it has happened before. Number two, they are Levitical. This is a Levitical city. These are Levites. They know, they should know exactly what to do. And so... God punishes them. God takes away 70 of their number. And what questions run through your mind, right? How are you disturbed by this scene? Many of us are disturbed at how harsh and unforgiving God is. And rightly so, right? God seems to be harsh. Is he harsh in the face of uh, rebellion? Yep, he is. Is he unforgiving? Well, yes and no, right? He, he forgives, but in certain ways. So questions, why is God so harsh and unforgiving? Another question to ask, right, from the flip side is, how can these guys be so irreverent? After all, they're Levites, right? What is going on with them? How did they forget? Was it because God has been away with them from, from them for so long? No, it's only, what, seven weeks, seven months? It's not too long, right? So why? Why do people become irreverent? You use that question and now you press it back into yourself, right? Might I, might I be so irreverent? Am I so irreverent? Do I worship God? And here's a, here's a phrase that I learned from Simon, anyhow. Do I worship God anyhow? I've never heard people using that as much. Okay, anyway, how you worship God? Can you anyhow worship God? The answer is no. This passage tells us you cannot anyhow worship God. I cannot worship God the way it pleases me. I must worship God the way it pleases Him. What does the irreverence of receiving God, what does that look like? Let me tell you what reverence looks like. <clears throat> uh, so Simon and I and some, some other folks in uh, RAC, we went to India uh, about a week and a half ago uh, for a Resound conference. And one of the sessions, somebody led and then we, we said, let's, let's, um, let's worship God. My wife and I were sitting right in front. Now my wife, Chan, was sitting like right at the front. There was nobody in front of her. And when she heard, let's worship God, she stood up. Then I looked around, nobody else stood up, right? And I sort of uh, wanted to pat her and say, hey, nobody else standing up. But never mind, we continued to worship. 
And then at the end of that song, she sat down and I was, phew, good thing she didn't uh, realize, otherwise she would have been so embarrassed, right? That's, that's how much I don't understand my wife. Yesterday when we spoke, she said, oh, last week when I was at Resound and uh, worship started, I stood up. I looked around, nobody stood up. I didn't care. This is my reverence for God. That is reverence. When you respond to the immense God out of the worship in your heart, you just stand up, right? You don't care what people think. That is reverence. That is my wife, Cheyenne. <laughs> yeah. So that's reverence. But what does, what does irreverence look like? What does irreverence in a church look like? What does irreverence in our personal life look like? Maybe the most important, the most clear diagnosis would be the time you set aside for reverence, how does that look like? Your personal devotion, does it even exist? How do you pray? Are you distracted when you pray? What about your reading? Uh, what about your, your spiritual disciplines? That is to be set aside just for, just for reverence, right? How is that doing? And that's, that's not even talking about things outside of that time you set aside, right? So these are things that we need to ask ourselves and to confront ourselves, right? But again, when you look at this passage, there's this disturbing thought, right? Wow, God is, is really hard to please, absolutely hard to please all the time. What do we do when those questions plague us? We can behave like the Philistines or the people of Beth Shemesh, which is you run. You run, right? Now, the thing is, when you run, there are many directions to run. The people of Beth Shemesh and the Philistines, they ran away from God. They pushed God away. They separated themselves from, from God. What do we do? Where do we run? Who do we turn to? So here's the beauty, right? For us, in our day and age, we do not need to turn to the ark. We don't run away from God. We turn to Jesus. Why do we turn to Jesus? We turn to Jesus, right? Why do we turn to Jesus? Because the ark, as was the tabernacle, as was the temple, all these things were earthly copies of heavenly realities. If the ark and the temple are just vague, indistinct shadows, the sharpness of the reality is the sharpness of the cross. And the sharpness of the cross in the light of the light of God, that is the thing that throws the shadow. So what is the reality? What is the reality that casts this? The reality is Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the picture of the ark. Now, if the picture of the ark and the ark is an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality, when you look at the ark, you see the representation of Jesus and his work there, right? The place above the cherubim where God's presence was once a year with Jesus Christ. He walked the earth for 30 plus years he was literally, physically in the midst of his people. He tabernacled with the people. And when he left for us, well, Jesus isn't here. No, he is, right? He is here in spirit. His spirit is here. His spirit is in me. His spirit is in the person next to you. He dwells with us. That is Jesus Christ. What else? This is God dwelling with us. The jar of manna. What does the jar of manna represent? Provision, right? provision, literal food for the people in Israel to eat as they went through the, the desert. For us, Jesus isn't literal food. Yes, he provides literal food, but he is 
our sustenance. He is the bread of life. He gives us our provisions. He gives us life and life to the full. The tablets, what are the tablets? The tablets are God's instruction to us, God's revelation to us, God's requirement of us. Jesus is the fulfillment, the perfection of all that. And what does the tablets, what do they encompass? God's promise, the covenant. God cut a covenant with the Old Testament Israelites. He cut a covenant with us in Jesus Christ through His blood, which we will commemorate and recall and hold afterwards. Yeah? This is Jesus. His presence, His provision, His word, His covenant. And He is also... He is also the payment. Remember just now, the, uh, the Philistines, when they sent the ark back, they paid in kind and at great cost. Jesus is the payment in kind and at great cost. What do I mean by in kind? When these are their afflictions, they go plated it and they send it to God, right? How does Jesus pay in kind? What does he have to pay for? What does he pay f- buy us out of? Sin and death, right? For all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? And what are the wages of sin? Death. So Jesus paid in kind. He didn't go plate anything. He died. He died for us on the cross in kind. At great cost, was the cross gold plated? No. The great cost is the cost of this perfect man's life. This only begotten Son of God given to us in whole. That is the great cost. And when he died, he did what the mercy seat did on Yom Kippur. What does the mercy seat do? The mercy seat obscures the brokenness of the tablets from the eyes of God. When Christ died, his blood obscures our brokenness, our sin from the eyes of God. We are still there, but we are clothed with his righteousness and his blood. This is Jesus Christ. And ultimately, he has defeated the enemy the battle has, no, the war has been won, but the battles continue, and he will bring judgment. And because of these things, right, what is our response to this great God, this immense God, this Jesus Christ, who, I don't know how tall he was, he was maybe this tall, right? He's not a large man, he's probably an average sized man, but he is the immense God. He is the immense God, who even now, touches us and has relationship with us. So how do we respond to that? We respond to that with worship and reverence. We respond to that by very often reminding us of the immensity, reminding ourselves of the immensity of God. We respond with thanksgiving that we have been dragged out of these places to worship God, to be given God by Himself. And we respond in faith and trust in the dark places we are in, in the situations of hopelessness that we are in, we respond in faith and trust. I think one example of people responding in faith and trust is the last group of people that we encounter in today's passage. And these are the people of Kiriath Jerim, chapter 7, verses 1 to 2. So I think in contrast to the people of Beth Shemesh, this was not a Levitical town. Let me read chapter 7, 1 to 2. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day the ark, that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, 
some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. How did the people of God, the people in Kiriath Jerim, how did they receive the presence of God? How did they receive God? They received God with great care and reverence. It's not described there, but we know because they didn't die. They were not judged by God. So there was something good about how they did this. They know, we know this. And we also know this because Eliezer was consecrated to take charge of the ark. Why is consecration necessary? I think consecration is necessary because it recognizes, acknowledges that we are dirty. We are messed up. We need to be cleansed. So symbolically, we clean ourselves so that we may appear before God. And so we want to respond like the people of Kiriath Jerim, with great care, with great reverence, and with consecration. Can we consecrate ourselves? No, we can't, right? We can only be consecrated when we come before God, who has washed us clean, but once in a while our feet get dirty, He will wash our feet. And we do this when we come before God in confession. So these people receive God with great care and reverence. They also receive God with great faith and hope. Why do we know that there's faith? Why do we know that there's hope? Because they held on to they, they, they held on to the word of God, how God had given himself to them for 20 years. Not one year, not two years, 20 years. What does that require? That requires two things, right? Faith that the promises that are anchored in these things will come true and hope that this will eventually end. And this is not the hope of maybe yes, maybe no. This is the sure hope of people in our trustworthy God. So this is a great example of how to receive God. Receive God and then wait. What are you guys waiting for? Is there something you're waiting for? Is there some victory you're waiting for? Is there some solace you're waiting for? I've been waiting for my mother to tell me that she believes in Jesus Christ and calls him her Lord and Savior. And it's been an up and down journey. The, initially, she said, not interested at all. And then she said, yes. And then she said, not this church. And then, I think, beginning of this year, she asked me, when is next baptism? So I like, yes, right? Uh, and then when I talked to her about baptism, uh, I found out, I realized she wanted to be baptized because that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted for her. And so I sort of backed off, um, broke my heart a bit, but this passage tells me, right, when you receive these promises of God, when God gives you these things, you just hang on to it. Not on my strength, but yours, God, and wait. If it takes 20 years, it's going to take 20 years. But the outcome is guaranteed by God. And however it comes out, I'm going to be joyful. So that's me and waiting. What are you guys? What, what have you been waiting for? How long have you been waiting for? Have thing, things seem hopeless? Do the barriers seem unsurmountable? When that happens, I think it's because our view of God is just too small. God is this immense God. There's no way my hand can sort of simulate how immense God is. But this is the immense God who has promised you provision, protection, presence, this is the immense God who will, who will give you your provisions, those things that you need. So how will you wait? Will you wait 
like the people of Kiryat Jerim. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great joy we have, Lord, in reading of this initially discouraging passage. But Lord, as, as your spirit leads us, we see that in this passage, we see the immensity of your love, the immensity of your power and strength, and the immensity of your promise to us, Lord. So we, the little people in the world, Lord, can stand strong, not because we are large, but because you are immense. So Lord, we thank you for giving us the assurance. Uh, we thank you for telling us who wait, Lord, to wait on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.